welcome to The Happy Writer. This is a podcast that aims to bring readers more books to enjoy and to help authors find more joy in their writing. I am your host, Marissa Meyer. Thank you so much for joining me. One thing making me happy this week, uh, something that's sort of relevant to the book we're going to be talking about today. Uh, This past weekend, we went up to Seattle um, as a family for a family date. We don't really get up to the big city a whole lot, Um, but we went and we discovered the Seattle Pinball Museum. Uh, It is this really cool little museum, two floors located in the International District, and it is full of pinball machines dating all the way back to like the 1950s. So you pay your admission fee and then you get to play as much pinball as you want. So we spent a good couple of hours there and it was so much fun. And there's pinballs that like, who knew? Who knew? There's a Willy Wonka pinball and a Lord of the Rings pinball and my personal favorite, which surprised me, but I loved the Guns N' Roses pinball not like a super Guns N' Roses fan, but it was a great pinball machine. <laughs> um, so it was a lot of fun. And also, it kind of gave me a new career goal. I am suddenly like, you know, it would be really just awesome. Just like the, the the topping on the cake of all time, a Lunar Chronicles pinball machine. So why not dream big? Maybe someday. Of course, I am also so happy to be talking to today's guest. She's the best-selling author of Slay, The Cost of Knowing, and Marvel Spider-Man, Miles Morales, Wings of Fury. She also writes video games, which is really cool, and I totally want to know more about that if we have time. Her newest contemporary action novel, The Jump, just came out last week. Please welcome Brittany Morris. Hi, Marissa. Hi, everyone. Hello, and thank you so much for joining me. How are you? Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. I'm doing great. Thank you. So a pinball museum, is that new? Because I don't remember that being there when I lived there. Yeah, I don't know how long it's been there, but this was the first I'd heard of it. My husband was searching for museums and he stumbled onto it. Yeah. Seems magical. It was very (laughs) cool. And I think what a great idea to just, you know, pay your entry fee and then have free access to all the machines and they've got I mean they don't have like food or anything but you can get like a beer or some like cider or something and it's like yeah I could totally go and hang out for a while it was very fun that's so cool and very Seattle I love it very Seattle (laughs) so nerdy techie um well I'm super excited to have you today to talk about this really fun book uh when we were chatting before we started the recording you referred to it as a party book which I love. Uh, But before we get there, um, the question I love to start out with, I'd like to hear your origin story. How did you become a writer? Oh, I love that question. Um, So, well, actually, my origin story starts all the way back in childhood. I had, I grew up in a really unkind home. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a lot of yelling, lots of just, I don't remember a single conversation between my parents that didn't end in a screaming match. So since my life was quite chaotic growing up, um, and it was also heavily, you know, policed and a lot of religious oppression going on as well. There's a whole mixed bag of stuff. Mm. Um, the blank page was really one of the only places I could escape to where I could freely 
process the world around me without judgment or ridicule or having to, you know, explain myself and without fear of retribution. So I quickly latched on to creating content since I wasn't really allowed to take in much media and and content of the world as my mm-hmm. parents put it. So that was kind of where it began and then it the fire that really ignited that fuel was when I had my first journal assignment in the 4th grade and the journal assignment was just to write a single page per day of what was going on in our lives. And I took one look at my life at home and went, well, I'm not writing about that. Uh, so we're just going to make up some characters. And, and here we go. The teacher um, had no idea what they were getting into. Yeah, she had, poor, my poor teacher. She asked for a page of, of a journal and she got a 14 page uh, fiction <laughs> short, short story. Um, but she came to me and she was like, I really enjoyed reading this. Have you thought about writing books at, like when you grow up and I said people do that and she's like yeah well, where do you think books come from that's a that's a thing <laughs> and ever since I was like I want to be a writer and that's that's all I want to do I love that so was it a fairly quick path for you it was quicker than a lot of people I can't complain um I did clock 200 query letters before I got okay. a <laughs> But who's counting? Yeah. (laughs) How many um, manuscripts do you think you wrote before one sold? Oh, boy. I think I had five or six. Um, But Slay was actually my first book that featured a Black protagonist. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, did you feel like you had more heart and more of yourself into that one? Do you credit that at all with its why it sold? Absolutely. It, it, I mean, it was also my first book where I was talking about video games, which is <laughs> my second biggest passion. Um, <laughs> but yeah, before Slay, I, I was writing what I thought famous writers TM wrote. Mm. So I was writing white male protagonists. I, I wanted to be, you know, as many people back then at least wanted to be the next JK Rowling. So I said, if I'm going to be the next JK Rowling before JK Rowling became JK Rowling on Twitter, I need to write a white male protagonist going mm. to maybe not a wizard school, but something adjacent. Um, and so that was the kind of stuff I was writing. And it wasn't until I, I wrote my story in Slay that my writing really began to shine. Yeah, yeah. Did it become more enjoyable for you too, do you feel? Absolutely. I wrote Slay in 11 days. So how, I mean, you wrote it in 11 days, but that's not the end of that story. Like, so people don't hear that and think, wow, I could write a book in 11 days and then I'll get it sold the week after. I assume there was more to that. Oh yeah, no, I I, I I do have to warn people, please do not attempt to write a book in 11 days. I came down with the flu on day 12. Like oh, I didn't boy. sleep, I didn't eat, it was bad. <laughs> yeah. So like how, how long from finishing um, what I assume was that first draft to then like sending it out to agents? Actually, so the, I guess this is a really unique case because I tagged four of my friends and I said, look, You've had to tolerate my my very unpublishable writing in the past, but I, I ask for one more time. I have this book that I've never felt so excited about. I will pay you to beta read this book in four days. And I offered them each $200 and none of them took it. And they all were like, we were like these these were my like my best friends since middle school so they were like no <laughs> like just put me in the acknowledgments or something and we're good i was so, gonna say yeah. no they wouldn't take the money or no they wouldn't read it 
They wouldn't take the money. I sent it to them anyway, but they they refused. They tried to refuse. Yeah, they they all said yes, and they all got it back to me in four days. And so it had seen four eyes in, you know, what was that, 15 days? And so it was queryable, at least. Um, so that was when I, I queried agents with it. So I have never heard a story like this before. I am blown away. And so you sent out those queries, and then what? Was there just, like, immediate interest? There was. So this came on the heels of Pit Mad. Um, so I wanted to finish the novel in time for Pit Mad. Um, so that was why there was a, a rush. I started writing it a few days after seeing Black Panther. That was where the, the main inspiration came from. And so then I looked at the next Pit Mad date and I was like, oh my goodness, I have 14 days. So There's nothing like point- a deadline to motivate you. <laughs> Right? Yeah, that's exactly what happened. Um, so thanks to Pit Mad, thanks to all the attention from from that, from all of the attention from my beta readers, I was able to get it decent and get it, you know, to an appropriate length and got it in front of agents. What a cool story. So, okay, so you you write five or six books trying to write for the market. It's not really happening you get inspired, you pour your heart, you you finally write something that feels like it's got more of you in it. It's settled in a snap. Then what? I mean, did you, was like second book syndrome particularly bad or did you just like keep riding that wave? Oh, that I love that question. So funny story. I, I, I come up with more book ideas than, that, I come up with book ideas faster than I can actually write the books. So. Oh, oh gosh, I know that problem well. <laughs> So I think right now I've got a stock of 14 different book ideas that I could like they're fragments and they're not complete, but they're they're at least jumping off points. And the next one that was screaming at me was this this idea for the cost of knowing. And it actually started with this idea of a teenage boy who, of all things, worked in a toothpaste factory. That was what was I don't know what my brain was doing, but we had toothpaste factory. I was like, all right, creative process. I Here we go. Um <laughs> And, you know, with every, like, toothpaste cap he he screwed onto the bot- or onto the uh, tube, he could see the future of where that toothpaste bottle was going. <laughs> and, like, I just started thinking of all the different contexts in which you would find a bottle of toothpaste and, like, what kind of scenarios would be around that and, like, what kinds of visions of the future he could see. And then from there, um, I thought of, you know, what if there's another worker in the same factory who can do the same thing but he can see into the past and then I was like, what if they're brothers? And then I was like, what if they're black and they have superpowers? And they, you know, get that then it evolved into what the cost of knowing is. <laughs> I love and we nixed the toothpaste work. factory. <laughs> that is so fun. What a, a totally unique idea. Yeah. So then how quickly did you write that one? That one took me a few months, I think. Okay. Okay. So yeah. now we're, we've kind of leveled out into quote unquote average, I'd say at that point. I'm yes. still fast, still very fast. <laughs> a, um, very, a much healthier pace. <laughs> right. Healthier. That's a, a good word for it. I know you, <laughs> I mean, as much as I love the idea of just being able to write a book every 11 days, it does sound like a recipe <laughs> for burnout. Oh yeah. Okay. Well, here we are now. Um, your, I want to say fourth novel. The yeah. Jump just came out. Is Am I counting correctly? That's correct. All right. I didn't make sure I didn't miss one in there. Uh, Your fourth novel is coming out. Um, Actually, your fourth novel just came out last week. Would you please tell listeners a little bit about The Jump? I would love to. Um, So The Jump is a national treasure if Nicolas Cage were four teenagers taking down an oil refinery. (laughs) 
So, so we've got four working class teens living in Seattle who are playing a cryptology game citywide with very high stakes, uh, posted by a mysterious online vigilante group called The Order. Uh, and with this game, the prize is influence and power, which is quite mysterious. And uh, they are playing for said influence and power in the hopes of taking down this refinery that is going up in their neighborhood. So in this book, I tackle themes like environmentalism, um, social justice, of course, uh, hostile architectures in there. Mm. Um, We've got, you know, voices from Native characters in the book. Um, because I really didn't feel like I could write a book about environmental with, environmentalism without talking about people who, you know, say humanity is a scourge upon the earth and then juxtaposing that against the voices of Native people who have been preservers of this earth for mm. many thousands of years. Yeah. So I, I, I talk about a lot of stuff. and I'm, You do, definitely. Like, it definitely spans a lot, a lot of different themes and uh, things to think about in the book. But under the guise of this really fun, action-packed scavenger hunt. Yes. I love it. Uh, so many things that just, like, get me really, really giddy in this book. Thank you. So the thing I want to start with is the setting, um, because it is set in Seattle. I live in Tacoma. I'm in the Pacific Northwest and I don't read a ton of books actually set in this area. And so it was really fun for me and fun for me to be up in Seattle this past weekend. And we were like in Soto and the International District and spent some time at Pike Place and went and had food at South Lake Union. And I was like, I feel like I just read the tour guide for this book because I just read the job. (laughs) Why Seattle? I that I love that question. So I miss Seattle. I grew up. Well, I didn't grow up there. I lived there for I think almost seven years, six and a half years. Um, and then I moved out here to Philadelphia in 2019, and that was a massive culture shock. I went from I didn't have a car in Seattle. I would I biked everywhere. I was like we were we were like hippie central up there like i was very i was very like you know hippy dippy up there all organic foods and like jax's mom in the book that was that was me yeah um, <laughs> i love it i love jax's mom <laughs> yeah um and then i came out here and just the the culture is just so so different in philadelphia and it took some getting used to and so while i was you know out here and in a pandemic so i couldn't really you know meet my neighbors and i just kind of felt like i had put myself in a hole and I wasn't familiar with the area like it was it wasn't a fun time so I just found myself pining after Seattle and the life that my husband and I had out there for a while and so I was like well if I can't you know live there right now maybe I could just write a book there and and kind of relive some of the memories so that was why I chose Seattle and then in addition if I'm going to write about four techie teens who are, you know, variety of backgrounds, variety of colors, variety of experiences, Seattle just felt so natural. And if I'm going to write a book about a citywide scavenger hunt, better pick an area that I know. Yeah. <laughs> so, so Seattle it was. Definitely. No, it's funny because you hear about like this idea of how in some books the setting is almost its own character. And I feel like we see that a lot in fantasy, not so much usually in contemporary, but I definitely feel like this is one of those books 
that the setting, the city itself has its own personality. And it was really fun. All of just like the the little details that you put in and all of the neighborhoods had each have their own vibe to them. Uh, and it definitely had that setting as character feeling to it. Thank you so much. Was that something that was intentional for you? It was. I mean, not not to, you know, give the city its own personality, but just picturing myself back in Seattle and like the feelings that I had when I went to places like Pike Place Market, you know, and feeling like the fresh air out there and just seeing all of the different vendors and everything. And just, I don't know, I just, I, I felt a feeling of freedom while I was out there, especially Pike Place Market. I don't know what it is, if it's like a spiritual thing, like I'm not, I'm not, not a very spiritual person, but like it felt like a spiritual experience just being in Pike Place Market. Um, and so those different areas of Seattle that I used to go to, I just remember how they would make me feel. And I remember wanting to put that on the page as authentically as possible. So pretty much all of the locations in the jump readers are they're they're actually places, real places that readers can go to if they if they want. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. In some places that I've been, which is really fun for me. But there's also like, I mean, there's so much detail. And I was curious, did you... I mean, obviously, you're already familiar with Seattle. You lived there. Did you travel back at all to to do any writing? Or did you, like, spend time scouring Google Maps, like, the street view to get the certain details right? Or, like, what was the research process like? Absolutely Google Street View. That's, that's exactly <laughs> what I did. Okay. <laughs> it was all Google Street View. <laughs> like, that's it. That was my research right there. Yeah, that was it. I... I mean, I knew there were like different areas that I wanted to go to. I definitely wanted to at least be in Pike Place Market, wanted to be in the International District, wanted to be in downtown. Um, and I remember what those places were like. But to get, you know, kids following clues with like cross street names and, you know, even as much as like describing that there's like a railing that's next to a building. Like I wanted to make sure every single detail was was there at least yeah. at the time I, I wrote the book everything's changing all the time right sure but yeah but I wanted to get it as close to you know putting the reader in Seattle as I possibly could yeah yeah no I think you did a fantastic job and I know that that's not an easy thing to do um you know a lot of times you just don't you know if you're trying to write about a city or a location that you're not there physically you don't always know what sorts of details to include unless you can actually be there and smell the smells and see the details with your own eyes. It can be very difficult to accomplish. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. But no, I felt like I was there and I loved it. I, I loved, you know, seeing it's not my city. Again, I live in Tacoma, but I've definitely been there many, many, many times over my life. And it was fun getting to see it. Yeah. Uh, so you mentioned the scavenger hunt and having to write these clues that the main characters are chasing after to try to solve these riddles and these puzzles. So talk to me a little bit about your process for writing the actual clues and the scavenger hunt. What was your strategy there? Yeah, so I first was inspired to write about a scavenger hunt after I saw a mini documentary on YouTube about the Cicada, I think it's 1099 puzzle. There is a famous cryptology puzzle uh, that occurred in the early 2000s, I want to say, that was highly, highly mysterious. And it, it's still kind of unknown what happened to the, the winners. 
Um, what? Right. <laughs> it's, it's very creepy. It's so cool, though. Did you say um, this is a documentary that you watched? Yeah, it's a, a it's a I am writing documentary. It, I'm writing it down. Yeah, the cicada puzzle. Um, okay. I think it was posted by a group called Cicada, um, and they had these very creepy, you know, cryptic posts. And I believe the first clue that they posted was the photo. It was a, a photo with text, and it just said something mysterious. And I guess people had to look behind the photo at, like, the coding. And so that was, like, the first hurdle for people to get over to get to the next clue. And then there was, at one point, they... Uh, there was a phone number in one of the clues. And then when you dial it, you get a URL. And then when you plug in the URL, you get the next clue. But they locked it down after a handful of people. And they said they just changed the URL to a website that said, we want the leaders, not the followers or something. So they were like, if you haven't gotten here by now, you're out. Hmm. So it was very creepy. And 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 just, I, I was just so intrigued by by that whole situation and the fact that it happened in real life. And I was like, I'm, yeah. I definitely want to write about that. <laughs> no kidding. I am fascinated. I cannot go, wait to go watch this. Okay. So you ha- you heard about this, this actual super creepy scavenger hunt um, and decided to write one yourself. And clearly some of the existing clues kind of uh, helped inspire some of the clues you wrote. Did you know where each clue was going to lead to and then you had to like come up with a clue to get the characters there or would you just like come up with a really cool riddle and then be like huh I wonder what that means funny story it was a little bit of both so I would get to the next clue and I knew a couple places that I knew the characters had to to get to eventually but with each one I was like okay how do I where like where do we go from here and so I picked a new spot that I wanted to get to and then I created a rhyme I don't actually, they might not all rhyme. I shouldn't say that. A clue for each one that, that led to the next one. So it was, yeah, it was a little bit of both. Yeah. Do you consider yourself like a, a puzzle-minded person? I am, I really enjoy puzzles. That's that's like how I would probably spend each evening if I, you know, wasn't wiping noses and cutting up food for lunch for school lunches. <laughs> and stuff. Like, <laughs> oh, the possibilities. <laughs> But yeah, I think that's my like leisure activity of choice outside of writing video game, writing comma video games, comma, it would be puzzles next. Yeah. Have you done um, any escape rooms? I have. I love them. (laughs) I love them too. My kids are finally old enough that we've started taking them with us to escape rooms and it's the best. It's the best. That sounds amazing. They're super into it. They're not like really helpful yet but they're super into it and it's really fun yeah that's so sweet my kiddo is two so yeah not there yet but (laughs) they will be they will be (laughs) yeah oh that'll be fun yeah um so I also I also just love puzzles and live for cryptography I shouldn't say live for it but like whenever I hear about a book or an article or anything to do with cryptography treasure hunting you know, hidden puzzles, any of that. I'm just like, I I want it. I want to know all. But I also know as a writer, it's hard coming up with things that are difficult to solve, but not impossible to solve. Like you want your reader to feel like, yeah, that really makes sense. But that also challenged your characters and also like lead somewhere in the story. Like it's a lot to try to fit into a very small puzzle. Yeah, it is. The first thing I had to think of with each, like, 
what what's next for each clue was what is this leading to? So every time, you know, a number pops up or a a, a, a QR code or or whatever it is, I had to ask, what am I looking at? Like, what is this, what is this going to lead to when I scan it, when I enter it, when mm-hmm. I, you know, follow whatever it is. And so I just kind of went from there after that. Yeah. But then I also wonder, so like, for example, there's one clue that's just a series of numbers. Um, mm-hmm. And I won't tell, I won't give away what, the clue ends up being um but I was like how many different series of numbers did Brittany have to go and google before (laughs) she found 12 that doesn't mean anything (laughs) yeah um oh funny story um I went through just about as many as Han does when he finds (laughs) that number I was like well time to list everything I was thinking (laughs) right (laughs) Nope, that goes somewhere weird. Nope, that goes somewhere <laughs> weird too. <laughs> All right. Um, so let's talk about these four amazing characters. So the book is told from four different perspectives, all first person, which I am just blown away by. And were there times when you were like wondering why you were doing this to yourself? <laughs> like it seems to me like it'd be so hard to write from four different perspectives all in first person. Yeah, I mean it was it was my first experience writing four different points of view and when my editor when my editor gave me the green light, she thought it was going to be one point of view. <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> and yeah, I got to chapter 2 and I was like well, she's going to kill me. <laughs> but I was like, this is calling to me and here we go. So mm-hmm. I think I got four chapters in and sent it to her. And I was like, what are you thinking? And she was like, you know what? This is actually really comfortable. Let's see what you can do with it. So my main goal with each one, I mean, it helps to have the name of the character at the very top of the chapter. So the reader knows what perspective they're reading from. Mm-hmm. But I also knew I wanted to make each voice very, very distinct And I wanted to nail the voice change in each first sentence of each chapter because I want I want to throw the reader into a completely different environment. So, um, you know, when it switches from, you know, Jax to Yaz, you might be solving a puzzle as Jax and then you might switch and be on a roof somewhere as Yaz because she's the parkourist. Um, So everything from setting, from what they're saying to the tone that they're taking, I wanted it to be a very, very sharp change between characters. I hope I did that. Okay, we'll see how it lands. <laughs> yeah, no, I thought the voices were fantastic. Was Thank there you. some that were easier, like some voices that came to you more naturally than others? There were, yeah. Um, Yaz felt very natural. Um, Jax felt very natural. They're both half black. Um, Jax is half black and half white. Yaz is half black and half uh, Pakistani. And so it both of their voices, I felt very comfortable, you know, getting into the the groove of and then they also had very central themes so Jax's central theme is that he's a puzzler he's also happy-go-lucky he's the goofball Yaz is like she's very sharp she's very quick-witted and then she also has a lot of action a lot of movement in all of her points of view in all of her chapters um Spider was a little bit trickier because he's a quieter character um and he's a lot more introspective but he's also very like opinionated he has some very very strong opinions about a number of topics including gentrification Mm -hmm. um and um cultural appropriation 
So I kind of had to get in the groove of, of writing from his perspective. I think of all of them, Han might have been the most challenging perspective to write from for a number of reasons. One, Han is male and white. So he, he, we, we don't share a whole lot of demographic qualities. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he's also, he has autism. Um, and so I knew his perspective was one that I really wanted to get right. And autism is such a huge spectrum and there's so many different experiences as an autistic person that I, I wanted to tell a story that was authentic and that was believable and that was helpful, right? So I didn't want to write a character that encompassed any any tropes or, or hit any stereotypes, but I also wanted to be real about it and show the intersection between being a cryptologist, an amateur cryptologist, and, you know, taking on the establishment and everything, and also having autism. Um, so that appeared in a number of different ways throughout his chapters. Um, it was also a really cool experience to write a character who is nonverbal. I thought it was so yeah. interesting the way that Han communicates. And he has such a great personality. Thank you. Yeah, I love him. He's wonderful. <laughs> um, and they all are. I mean, all of the characters, you really fall in love with them. You really fall in love with their families, too. So many great families represented here. So back to, you know, how Han was maybe more difficult to write, um, just being more dissimilar from you from some of the others. And I know from experience, it can be really intimidating in a lot of ways to take on writing a character, you know, feeling so strongly that we want to treat people with respect, we want to do it right. How? What were some of the things that you did or the steps you took to feel like you you could do that? I love that question. First and foremost, we got sensitivity readers. Um, I asked my editor before I even wrote this, like, okay, can I get like some eyes on these people? So, you know, they're they're authentic and and I get everything as close to correct as possible. Um, and the answer was yes. And so I was like, okay, here we go. I'm going to take some chances and we're going to see how everything lands. Um, and I got notes back for Yaz, Spider, and Han. I made corrections. Um, and there really wasn't any... I didn't do any pushback. I didn't do any negotiating. I, they're the experts. Yeah. Um. So I took all notes on board, made changes. That was a big step. I also knew that this was a decision that I wanted to make writing such colorful characters because I'm writing in a major city. I really, I really couldn't write in any other way. <laughs> like if I'm going to write about a major city authentically, it's got to be colorful. Sure. It really does. Yeah. That was kind of the major thing I did. Yeah. No, and I think there's, you know, it's it's a knowledge thing that like, yeah, you can't use this setting and yet only talk about one small group of people. Like the world's a big place full of lots of wonderful human beings um, and they all deserve to <laughs> run around doing cool stuff like solving scavenger hunt puzzles. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I, I, I even learned so much in the process of writing this and the process of listening to sensitivity readers. Like I knew at the first draft, I was going to get things wrong. I was going to get things horribly wrong. And just some of the notes that I got back, like for instance, with Yaz, um, there were so many elements of just being a Muslim young woman in a major city that I just had not even considered. Right. Um, so I, I just got so many valuable notes back from from my sensitivity readers who yeah. were incredible. Yeah, no, absolutely. It is um 
you know, one of those things where you don't know what you don't know, you know, yeah. it's, it's, you can research, you know, and of course we, we all do a ton of research, but unless you know what questions to be asking, there's, there's things you're going to miss unless you have, you know, someone, an expert that can help guide you. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I want to ask about plotting and we've got four point of view characters. The chapters more or less alternate, you know, throughout the four as we go. And yet it is a very fast paced book. Um, There was never a time when it felt like, oh, we've switched into someone else's head and now everything comes to a screeching halt. Like it just keeps up at such a quick pace. Was that difficult to accomplish having four different perspectives or like how, how did you go about tackling that? I I wish I had a smarter answer to give me. (laughs) (laughs) Generally when I'm uh, drafting, the name of the game is to draft as quickly as possible. So I have tried pantsing in the past and that has led to a 200,000 word rambling mess. <laughs> and I have tried planning in the past and that has led to a 200,000 word plan. Uh, <laughs> So now I just kind of do a combination of planning and pantsing. I like to call it plantsing. I write out a half page bulleted list of all of my chapters. And in each bullet can only be one line long. That's my rule. And in each bullet, I write down the thing that has to happen in each chapter for it to be critical to the plot of the book and the hook at the end of each chapter that keeps the reader turning the page. And so with this book, since I had four different perspectives going, I knew that that hook at the end of each chapter needed to connect with what was about to happen in the next one. So if you notice at the end of each chapter, it ends with a point, and then the very next chapter, the next character is referring to where they are in the plot and their perspective on that point. Um, And that's kind of how I just kept kept everything kind of organized. (laughs) I love that you are speaking my nerdy plot loving language. (laughs) (laughs) I love this sort of thing. I love how just the craft of how other authors tackle this sorts of thing. Did you have times where you were like, well, here's the next thing that should happen plot wise. And probably that should be from, let's say, Spider's perspective but I haven't heard from Yaz in a while and I need a chapter from Yaz's perspective. Like, was that an issue at all? Surprisingly, no. I got to the end of each chapter and then I just kind of went, who do I want to hear from next? Like, as a reader, who who do I care about right now? Interesting. (laughs) Yeah. So I would get to the end of a chapter and something wild would happen and I would go, oh my goodness, what does that mean for this other character? And then I would be like, okay, now it's time to to jump to that character. Yeah. I imagine and I'm curious if this this work this happened for you because I can almost see that as like a a built-in radar for you as a writer that if ever there's a point where you just don't feel like going back to a certain character, like that could be a little alarm bell like, "Hmm, I wonder why I'm not caring so much about this character right now." What do I need to do to fix that? Was that something that came up? Absolutely. There were for a while I was bouncing back and forth between Yaz and Jax. And then I was like, oh shoot, <laughs> I need to actually get. And so I think there was a chapter early on from Han that got added in. And that was when like 
his his perspective just kind of started to sing throughout the book and that was when i really started getting the hang of writing him and writing spider and that was when their their plots kind of you know bloomed <laughs> yeah so my last question on this book earlier you referred to this as a party book and you said that not every book you've written felt like a party book what about this made it a party book for you I love that question. So yeah, Slay was a party book. It was, you know, a love letter to everyone in the Black diaspora globally. It was an invitation into a virtual reality safe space where people get to duel using uh, duel cards based on Black culture and Black history. It's 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 all of us playing with the legacies of our icons. Um, what's not to love? I had so much fun writing that. And then I moved on to writing The Cost of Knowing, which was a considerably heavier book. Um, And it was more about what would it be like to have superpowers as a Black kid? And also, (laughs) what is it like to have a mental illness and also be Black? And as someone with anxiety and depression myself, who was writing this right in the middle of, actually, it spans several Um, Black Lives Matter incidents, but including George Floyd, it really, really weighed heavy on me just how much it took out of me every time I turned on the news. And at the time, I had a very different perspective on violence against Black people than I do now. Um, A while ago, I years ago, I felt the need to remember their faces and their stories and the details of their cases. And I put it on as armor when I, you know, for when I would talk to people who didn't understand why I was so afraid to be pulled over in the future for, you know, people who might not understand why I'm so protective of my son when we're just out in public. And I I put all of that on and it, it, it just got so heavy. Um, it just, it just got to be so much. And now <laughs> I, I take in all the information and remember their names and speak out against it on social media, but I do it so in a way that's a lot healthier for me. And I think writing The Cost of Knowing really taught me how to do that. Interesting. So Cost of Knowing, clearly not a party book. No, (laughs) not a party book. The Jump, however, is a return to, you know, what I know and love, which is having fun and being an awkward Black kid in a big city doing their best. So (laughs) So clearly, yes, it's... It's interesting because it is a lighthearted read. And I say that kind of like ish um, because there is a lot of fun, a lot of action, really lovable characters. But here, too, you are tackling a lot of big societal issues and conundrums. Um, Is that something that you just feel like as a writer, these messages are just there and they're a part of your your heart and you're going to. They're just going to make their way into your creativity, whether it's a party book or otherwise. I think so. I think I think tackling issues that I have that I personally have big questions about is like my thing. Like and circling back to my writing origin story, the blank page was where I used to ask those big questions because I knew I you know wouldn't be ridiculed and all of that. So I'm I'm still answering the big questions through <laughs> through exploration in my own writing. Um, We're all trying to answer the big questions. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, you know, I've, since becoming a parent, I have even more big questions. Oh my gosh! <laughs> yeah. Um. So I think my 
style of writing will probably always be involving a big question of some kind and then having the plot be adjacent to reality. So with Slay, there was a whole virtual world involved um, with the cost of knowing that there was superpowers. And I think my main goal with giving writing, they're really love letters to my readers, with writing all of these books, these love letters, my main goal is to get my readers to ask themselves questions, to think about things in a different way. You know, there are so many people out there who, if I just, you know, blatantly told them I'm afraid to be pulled over by the police or being black exacerbates my anxiety and my depression for so many different reasons. I could tell people that, or I could explain, okay, if you can't see what I'm talking about in this reality, maybe you will understand it in an adjacent one. Mm. Um, And so that's also what I've kind of done with the jump. I talk about so many big topics, including environmentalism, gentrification, capitalism, even, and, I do so in the midst of a cryptology puzzle. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I I don't know. I love to tackle big, big topics through fun. I think that's that's kind of my thing. (laughs) No, I love that. And I I love it when a book makes me think um, and, you know, can have a different perspective. And I particularly love the idea of the book being a love letter to readers also. Yeah, for sure. All right, my last question before we move on to our bonus round, another one that I that I like to ask all of my guests, what do you feel is the biggest challenge or one of the biggest challenges that you've faced throughout your writing career so far? And how do you feel like you were able to overcome that? Oh, good question. Questions like this always make me just realize all over again how lucky I am. Like, <laughs> Well, that's um, good. That's a good realization to have. It is. It really is. I've I've been just I've been super lucky to be surrounded by people who are rooting for me and who have, you know, actionable feedback for me, especially my editors, my agents. They and they've all been super patient as well. Um, when it comes to things like black culture, you know, they always they so so far, they have all seen me as the expert among all of us. Um, because I'm the I'm the person who's living it. <laughs> which is really cool. Right. I don't have to, yeah. you know, explain myself and everything. I think a challenge that I foresee that is imminent is the book bans that are going on, mm. especially with voices of color, with LGBTQ voices. You know, those are, we're we're the authors who are writing those stories largely. And to have those silenced is doing a disservice to our kids and not just because they don't get to see kids who look like them, but because they get to they don't get to see kids who don't look like them. As someone who grew up in a very small town that was majority white, extremely religious, and all of that, I grew up in an echo chamber. And I grew up believing that I was the majority in this country. Surprise, I also grew up believing I was straight. Uh, nope. <laughs> and I just I, I just grew up in this this bubble and I didn't get to see anything else. And I really didn't get to experience the world until I started seeing experiences outside of my own. And I just think we're we're doing our kids such a disservice by silencing these voices and we're making it so they they aren't going to know how to live in a diverse world. And diversity is the future. So, if we want to equip our kids, we might as well show them the world before they 
get thrown into it, you know? Yeah, no, that's such an excellent point. Um, I guess it's probably too soon to really consider how you might have overcome that. I mean, it's kind of something we're we're kind of facing at the moment. So I don't know. Any any in- input or advice for anyone listening to this? For people who really care about this topic, especially if you have kids, teenagers in your house, I strongly encourage you to make banned books required reading. I just bought a copy of Mouse, both 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 books. It's sitting on my bookshelf now. I'm I just keep adding to my collection. Um, I love that. I love that. Yeah. All right. Are you ready for a bonus round? Absolutely. Tea or coffee? Coffee. Music or silence? Music. Sunny beach or snowy mountains? Snowy mountains. Would you rather be great at parkour or great at solving puzzles? Parkour, because I'm kind of already decent at puzzles. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Add another skill. Yeah, I could always use more. (laughs) Citywide scavenger hunt or escape room? Ooh. Depends on the city. Probably an escape room. <laughs> Do you have any writing rituals? Hmm. I don't think I have. It doesn't really feel like I have the luxury of that anymore. Like it used to be where I would like retreat to a coffee shop for like six hours. Mm-hmm. And that would be like my thing. Now I've got a toddler. He's got daycare. I've got a full time job. Like I write when I can, where I can. <laughs> so yeah. not really anymore. <laughs> Fair. Uh, what advice would you give to help someone be a happier writer? Ooh, Uh, can I say patience without being cliche? I guess patience with yourself. You know, you're, you're not, you're not on a, on a timer, on a deadline. There's, there's, there's nothing out there that says, you know, you must be published by X or Y and it's never too late for things to open up for you. So I encourage you to just uh, uh, enjoy whatever stage you're at. And that's so much harder to, you know, do than to say, I wish I had enjoyed the ride a little bit more on my way to publishing because I, I made myself miserable for no reason. <laughs> oh my gosh. I relate to that 100%. I do have to point out that I think it's really funny that that's your advice, given that you wrote and sold a book in 15 days. I know. <laughs> Patience. <laughs> All right. What book makes you happy? Ooh, most recently, The Phone Booth at the Edge of the World. Mm, I have not read that one yet. It's beautiful. What are you working on next? I am working on a middle grade, another YA, and an adult. (laughs) (laughs) No shortage of ideas. Nope. (laughs) Lastly, where can people find you? Uh, I am on Twitter and Instagram. I'm really just on Twitter, but I have an Instagram at (laughs) Brittany M. Morris. Awesome. Brittany, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. This has been great. Readers, I hope you will check out The Jump. It is available now. Of course, we encourage you to support your local indie bookstore if you can. If you don't have a local indie, you can check out our affiliate store. That's at bookshop.org slash shop slash Marissa Meyer. Next week, I will be chatting with Daniel Nayeri about his new middle grade fantasy, The Many Assassinations of Samir, The Seller of Dreams. How great is that title? I love it. If you're enjoying these conversations, please subscribe and follow us on Instagram at Marissa Meyer Author and at Happy Writer Podcast. Until next time, stay healthy, stay cozy. And whatever life throws at you today, I hope that now you're feeling a little bit happier.